Today we conclude our sermon series on turning points with the story of Saul, or as better known, the Apostle Paul and his Damascus Road experience. What might this story be saying to us as individuals and collectively as a congregation? Listen for this reading from Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord... I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I have lost count of how many times my good friend Donna Hudeman and I have led Bible and art tours at the Nelson Atkins where she is a docent. Totally lost track. But I do know this, that on every one of those tours, we always start with the same piece. It's by Guercino, and it's a painting within a painting. Let, let me explain. It's a huge canvas, and the, the artist, has portrayed St. Luke, the writer of the Gospel and the Book of Acts, as a painter himself. So in the painting, Luke is a painter. He stands with one hand with brushes and a palette, and with the other, he gestures toward a painting he has done of the Virgin and Christ child. And he looks at us as if to say, what do you think? And it's a great metaphor not only for the tour, but because no other writer in the New Testament has made a bigger impact on art than Luke. In fact, some traditions say that he was the patron saint of the arts. On those tours, my job's very clear. 
I'm supposed to talk about the biblical text that's being portrayed. But first, Donna talks about the art. And when it's a huge canvas, she'll sometimes do what she does with kids on a field trip. She'll have them make a little spyglass with their hand and start at the top and go left to right and come down top to bottom, trying to find something that you could miss if you just looked at the big thing. And while you're looking, she says, so what do you see? Michelangelo and Caravaggio and a host of others painted depictions of this story that we read in Acts 9 of Saul or the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. I don't know if those live in your memory, those masterpieces, or maybe you can just picture the scene yourself. But Caravaggio, Michelangelo, and most all of the other lesser-known artists who've done it have Saul blinded by a light and falling off his horse. If you pictured Paul falling off his horse, you are in good company. The southern writer Flannery O'Connor said, God knew the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. But since it's my job to look at the biblical text, well, there's no mention of a horse. It's not in the text. I mean, he could have been riding on one. He's knocked to the ground, but it doesn't say he's on a horse. That's harmless. But the idea that this is his conversion to Christianity, that's a little bit problematic. There's no way that's possible. I mean, there's no such thing as Christianity. Jesus was a Jew, and his early followers were mostly Jews, and Paul's a Jew, and yeah, during his lifetime, the Gentiles would come in, but that's just not possible. So what are we to see in this story? You know, seeing is a dominant metaphor here. I mean, he's blinded by a light. He has scales on his eyes. They fall off. He can see. It's a new vision. Lots of visions here. What do you see? What, what do you see in this story? I kind of think of it like, you know, in the movies, that kind of stereotypical moment when the patient has had eyes bandaged and there's gauze wrapped around, and now the doctor's carefully taking it off and says, okay, just take your time. What do you see? What do you see in this story? Well, as always, the backstory really helps. Paul's resume was impressive. I mean, he was a Roman citizen. He was highly educated by a well-known rabbi. And he was a member of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, if you don't know, were not religious folks. They weren't clergy. They were lay folks. But they were dedicated to the causes of God. And within Phariseeism, there were these two camps, two factions, parties, whatever you want to call them. And Paul was a member of the more conservative. But Paul's conservatism had gotten to the place of fanaticism. He was ready to kill in the name of God. It doesn't make sense, but you know how sometimes you'll hear about pro-life supporters killing abortion providers. That's somehow Paul got it in his head that his zeal for God would mean this kind of persecution. But this story is not about Paul's past. It's about his future. This is the biggest turning point of his life, the most important moment of his life. It's one of the most significant turning points in all of the New Testament. 
the idea that not just Jews, but non-Jews, Gentiles, would be included in this family of God. This is radical. I love the story that Fred Craddock tells about when he was a little boy in rural Tennessee. One summer, starry night, his dad, about sunset, took him out into a field. They laid on their back, and like good farm boys, they had a, a tender piece of grass in their mouth, and they're looking up, and his dad says, Son, how far can you think? <laughs> what kind of question is that? I mean, he's just a little kid. He, he doesn't know what he's even talking about. How far can you think? I tell you what, son, pick out a star in the sky. Now see if you can think that far. So he's a little boy, and he squinches up, and he tries to think as far as that star. And, and finally he says, I, I got it, Dad. I'm thinking that far. And he says, okay, good. Put a stake down right there. And then his dad says, now, what's beyond that? Oh, well, I guess more sky, more space, more stars. Well, then you're going to need another stake. You're going to have to think a little farther. What a wise dad. That's what's going on in the book of Acts. It is getting bigger. It's almost like if there were a modern piece of art and it had a circle in it and you stood in certain places and looked at it, it would look like it's growing. That's kind of what's happening in the book of Acts, but here's the reality. It's not that the circle of God's love is getting bigger. It's that the people are figuring out it was big all along. Last week, at the 10 o'clock hour, I did a presentation on LGBTQ and the Bible. And it's available on our church's YouTube page. I really encourage you to go to that. We had so much ground to cover, so little time, so I pointed out one passage in the book of Acts, which just so happens to butt up against this one. It is the very story before the one we read. In it, a man from Ethiopia which was the ends of the earth in the first century, outside of the Roman Empire. They could hardly conceive it. He's a person of color. He's from far away. He learns he's included in the family of God. And it's more than just his nationality and his color. It's his sexuality. He's described as a eunuch. He was castrated and gently mutilated so that he could be trusted in the queen's court. This made him impure by Jewish standards. And yet, he learns he is accepted. And remember, there are no chapter breaks when Luke wrote this. So it's not like we got separate framed stories here. It's one big canvas, and it just bleeds into this story of Paul. And then it bleeds into another story in chapter 10, where Peter, disciple of the Lord, apostle, he learns that even Roman soldiers are welcome. It's it's an incredible thing. I mean, you could picture it as a triptych. You know, those three panels hinged together that artists paint on. But it is this powerful image of inclusion. If this were Paul's conversion to Christianity, you would just chalk it up to personal religious experience. This is what happened to Paul. What happened to you? What happened to me? Maybe he got goosebumps. Maybe he had the uh, hairs on the back of his neck raised. But this is not about personal religious experience. His worldview changes. And with good humor, God calls him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. 
I mean, you got to appreciate that. I picture God just chuckling when He does that. When I was still teaching at the seminary, almost every week preaching in a different church, I'm really glad not to be doing that anymore. And sometimes they would invite me to come and do a workshop, you know, for the Pharisee, I mean, for the elders and the deacons in the church. And when I did, I would almost always get around to this point. I would say, I need you to tell me about your greeters. You know, the people at the door with the handshake and a bulletin, tell me about your greeters. So they'd start bragging about their greeters. We got one greeter's been doing it for 36 years, never missed a Sunday, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'd listen for a while. And then I said, so why do you have greeters? And they thought that's the dumbest question ever. You teach at the seminary and you don't know why a church has greeters? And I go, well, just, just tell me. And pretty much in unison, they'd get around to saying something like this. Because we want folks to know we're friendly church. Which makes perfect sense. Just happens to be dead wrong. We don't welcome people into the church because we're friendly. People are welcome in the church because God is friendly. And God welcomes us. We, we don't welcome gays because, you know, we're generous, big-hearted people. We don't welcome persons of color because we got big hearts. No, we welcome everyone because God is a welcoming God. And that's how we got in, even when we were closed-minded and had puny hearts. It's the nature of God to welcome all persons, even those who don't want to welcome all persons. It's a radical rereading. So, first half of this week, I just kept thinking, my God, how often does it have to go on that people would commit violence in the name of religion? It's been done so many times. It's a long list. I mean, the Nazis exterminating Jews, the KKK lynching all across the South, I thought, where are the stories of the racial bigots, the closed-minded folks who suddenly see and repent of their ways? And then I remembered one. On Wednesday, I remembered this movie that came out in 2019 called Best of Enemies. It's streaming on Amazon Prime for three bucks, which is a better use of three bucks than even a pumpkin latte. So you check it out. It's a true story set in Raleigh, I mean in Durham, North Carolina, 1971. It's a racial tinderbox ready to explode. Schools are segregated, lots of tension, and then there's a fire at the school where the black kids go. Well, where are they going to go? I mean, they're going to go to the school with the white kids? They have a fancy name for this committee that's formed, but I'll just call it a committee. A committee's going to study this, and there are people on both sides of the issue who are going to serve together, and the leader of this nominates two people to be co-hosts, C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater. C.P. Ellis is the head of the local chapter of the KKK, and Ann Atwater is an African-American woman, single mom, community activist, they have to serve together, and they cannot stand each other. They bump heads constantly. And, and very slowly but surely, on a long and bumpy road, a road much longer than the one to Damascus, something happens. 
In part, they both realize they care about their kids. But at the vote, at the time of the vote, it comes down to the final vote. And C.P. Ellis is about to make that vote. And you know all of his KKK brothers there know exactly how this is going down, except something like scales falls from his eyes. He, he tears up his membership card in front of them all and votes yes to integration. They would go on to form a friendship, speaking at universities and other places about their experiences. And when C.P. Ellis passed away, Ann Atwater spoke at his funeral. And all of that is in the movie. And I have to tell you, I was crying when I watched it. And when my wife got home and I told her about it, I started crying. It is so powerful. But I found a little footnote in the book out of which the movie comes. Ann Atwater does arrive for the funeral. She's early. She sits in the parlor where his casket is, and she waits for everyone to arrive. Well, the white funeral director looks in, sees her. He realizes she's just in the wrong parlor. It's okay. So he goes down. He says, excuse me, but this is the funeral for C.P. Ellis. She doesn't look up. She just says, I know. And he says, well, this is for family only. I know. Finally, he says, well, then, may I ask, how were you related to the deceased? And she finally looks up at him and says, he was my brother.